Well, everybody, thanks for tuning in to this video. Uh, this is, I'm recording this for primarily for my students to watch, who are taking my class right now, to, to watch this video and then bring comments, questions to class. We will discuss this difficult topic of the angry God of the Old Testament, you know, the, the, the quote, quote, angry God, unquote, also genocide and some of those difficult issues. Uh, so when you come to, if you're watching this and you're one of my students, come to class prepared to discuss these issues next time. And if you are just watching this uh, online, feel free to, I hope you enjoy it, feel free to comment in the comments uh, section on some, maybe something new that you learned or maybe a question you have. Uh, but let's let's dive in and see what we can say about this issue. Okay, so first we have to identify the problem. This is just a, a very a survey. We're not going to dive into every episode or pericope. This is just a very basic kind of rundown, just kind of almost off the top of my head of the, the illustration of the angry God. So first we've got, uh, here's a few up on the screen. We got Exodus 35. Uh, those who do not follow the Sabbath must be killed. Uh, you have a, a, in Joshua 7, you have a, a story where this Judahite named Achan this guy is stoned to death for stealing money from the Canaanites at Jericho in Numbers 15, where God kills a man for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And you also have a man named Uzzah who is killed for touching the ark. That's what this picture up here is uh, was on the screen. Okay, you also have, here's a picture of Lot's wife, pillar of salt. You've got God kills Judah's son for not sleeping with his brother's wife. He's commanded to, to go into, you know, his, this man died and his brother is to go into um, his deceased brother's wife and procreate with her. So the seed will carry on and be perpetuated, the posterity. God kills Judah's other son for not impregnating this same woman. What's interesting about this is that God does not punish Judah for sleeping with a prostitute in these same chapters. You have David sleeping with a soldier's wife and then kills uh, kills the man. But notice that he's exalted by later Israelite scribes. You know, in 2 Samuel and, and 2 Samuel 22 and 23, uh, talk about how he's exalted, but they clearly have a southern Judahite bias on the account. Okay, so move my screen up here, my picture. King Saul refuses to kill animals of the Amalekites, and so the Lord is displeased with him. Well, if you contrast that with David, he's a premeditated murderer and adulterer. And 1 Kings 14 says that David was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of his life, except for what he did to Uriah. So there's some contradictions here. Okay, so now I'm going to show a clip, maybe a total of 10 minutes of my, one of my favorite movies, God on Trial. This is set in Auschwitz, where you the movie is is in a barracks, almost totally in the barracks, where you have uh, a group of Jewish people, all Jewish men, who are struggling with how to make sense of what's happening during during World War II. And a lot of their, the people that they know, they've been ripped away from family members, people have been killed. They suspect that they soon will be killed, and they are devastated and angry, very angry. And so they decide to put God on trial. And the, the they are trying to determine whether God has broken the covenant with the Jewish people or if he's upheld the covenant with the Jewish people. And you had they, they designate someone to be the judge. They have scholars there 
Jewish scholar, Jewish study scholars, Bible scholars, and other people, just you're just typical people from around uh, Europe. They have a rabbi, as you can see up on the screen, and they all weigh in. It's a big philosophical debate throughout the movie. So let me just play some of this for you. So at first, so 12 minutes into the movie, you have a rabbi who's brought into the room, an Orthodox rabbi with his beard and his long hair, or beard and his hair and his black hat. And he's praying the whole time. So let me just show you this. If we must go ahead with this, can we at least ask this holy man so that God has someone to defend him? Rabbi. Rabbi. They are asking if you will speak with him. He's dumb. He recites them constantly. Through these last bad days, he has been a fountain of sweet water to us. He is called the living Torah. So you see that guy rocking back and forth. He's trying to stay focused. He's praying. He doesn't want any part of this discussion. Perhaps he even sees it as blasphemy, and he's trying to stay focused. Now let me show you another part where, and this rabbi says nothing the entire movie, nothing. Fast forward to um, about a half hour later in the movie, guards come and take, they take him away from the barracks and they cut his hair. Again, the rest of the movie, he doesn't say a word. Uh, everybody's uh, giving their thought and their experience, and this rabbi says nothing. Then towards the end of the movie, they're about to give the verdict on whether God is guilty or not. And right as they stand up to, to give the final verdict, the rabbi stands up and gives his final speech. The judges are three in number, so that there will always be a decision. It will either be unanimous or there will be a majority for one view. The accusation is that God has broken his covenant with the Jewish people. Who led us out of Egypt? Now we'll hear some sense. God led us out of Egypt. Another question. Why were we in Egypt to start with? Well, there was a famine. And so we took shelter. Who sent the famine? Well, the famine, we don't know much about God the sent the famine. So God sent us to Egypt and God took us out of Egypt. Exactly, sir. And later he sent us out of Babylon in order and that we might... When learn. he brought us out of Egypt, how did he do it? By words, visions, a miracle? Moses asked Pharaoh... And when Pharaoh said no... The plagues... First, Moses turned the Egyptians' water to blood. 
Then God sent a plague of frogs, next a plague of mosquitoes, then a plague of flies. Then he slew their livestock, next a plague of boils. Next came the hail, which battered down the crops and even the trees and structures everywhere, except in Goshen, where the Israelites lived. And still Pharaoh did not agree. And so a plague of locusts, and then the days of darkness, and finally, what? God slew the firstborn of Egypt and led us out of Egypt. He struck down the firstborn. From the firstborn and heir of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the slave at the mill, he slew them all. Did he slay Pharaoh? No, I don't think so, because later... It was Pharaoh who said no, but God let him live and slew his children instead. All the children. And then the people of Israel made their escape, taking with them the gold and silver and jewelry and garments of the Egyptians. And then God drowned the soldiers who pursued them. He did not close the waters up so that the soldiers could not follow. He waited till they were following, and then he closed the waters. And then what? Then the desert, ultimately the promised land. Now, the promised land, was it empty, a new place, uncultivated? No, there were... As is written. When the Lord thy God shall bring you into the land, you shall cast out many nations before you, nations much greater and mightier than you are. You shall smite them and utterly destroy them and make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. He's shown us his favor. We are his people. And he gave us a king in Saul. Now, when uh, the people of Amalek fought uh, Saul's people, what did the Lord God command? Hmm? I ask the scholar. Crush Amalek, put him under the curse of destruction. Was Saul to show mercy to spare anyone? Do not spare Do him. Do not spare him, but kill. Kill man and woman, babe and suckling, ox and sheep, camels and donkey. So Saul set out to do this, and on the way he met the Kenites. Now, these were not Amalek's people. He had no quarrel with them. He urged them to flee. And the Lord our God, was he pleased by the mercy of Saul, by the justice of Saul? No, no, he wasn't. And when Saul decided not to slaughter all the livestock, but to take it to feed his people, was God pleased by his prudence, his charity? No. No. He was not. He said, you have rejected the word of Adonai, therefore he has rejected you as king. So, seeking to please the Lord our God, Samuel brought forth King Agag and hacked him to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. After Saul, there came David, who took Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, to himself by arranging to have Uriah killed against the wishes of God. Did God strike David for this? In a manner of speaking. Did he strike Bathsheba? In the sense that when they had... Adonai said, 
since you have sinned me, the child will die. You asked earlier who punishes a child. God does. Now, did the child die suddenly, mercifully, without pain? In chapter 12, we learned that in actual seven days. Seven days that child spent dying in pain while David wrapped himself in sack and ashes and fasted and sought to show his sorrow to God. Did God listen? The child died. Did that child find that God was just? Did the Amalekites think that Adonai was just? Did the mothers of Egypt, the mothers, did they think that Adonai was just? But Adonai is our God, sure. Oh, well, did God not make the Egyptians? Did he not make their rivers and make their crops grow? If not him, then who? What, some, some other God? And what did he make them for? To punish them? To starve, to frighten, to slaughter them? The people of Amalek, the people of Egypt, what was it like for them when Adonai turned against them? It was like this. Today there was a selection, yes? When David defeated the Moabites, what did he do? He made them lie on the ground in lines and he chose one to live and two to die. We are become the Moabites. We are learning how it was for the Amalekites. They faced extinction at the hand of Adonai. They died for his purpose. They fell as we are falling. They were afraid as we are afraid. And what did they learn? They learned that Adonai, the Lord, our God, our God is not good. He is not good. He was not ever good. He was only on our side. is not good. Oh, at the beginning when, when he uh, repented that he had made human beings and flooded the earth. Why? What had they done to deserve annihilation? What could they have done to deserve such wholesale slaughter? What could they have done that was so bad? God is not good. When he asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, Abraham should have said no. We should have taught our God the justice that was in our hearts. We should have stood up to him. He's not good. He has simply been strong. He's simply been on our side. When we were brought here, we were brought by train. Um, a guard slapped my face. On their belts, they had written, Gott mit uns. God is with us. Now, who is to say that he is not? Perhaps he is. Is there any other explanation 
What do we see here? His power, his majesty, his might, all these things, but turned against us. He is still God, but not our God. He has become our enemy. That's what's happened to the covenant. He has made a new covenant with someone else. Okay, I just want to show you one more part. I'm giving away the end of the movie, but um, uh, I think it's important to watch what happens here. When right after this, the guards come in and they start reading names. And the guy earlier in the movie who called the rabbi dumb, watch what he does. Three, eight, six, seven, five. Three, eight, six, nine, two. Three eight six nine five. Three eight six nine seven. What do we do now? Three eight seven oh two. Now God's guilty. What do we do now? Three eight seven one one. No. Three eight seven four. No, we pray. Three nine oh five five. A refuge from age to age. Three nine oh seven five. Three nine oh six six. From eternity to eternity. Three nine two five nine. You bring us to three seven five five. Okay, that's enough of that movie. So I, they're covering their heads because they don't have their yarmulke or kippa, and um, it's Jewish tradition, centuries, centuries old, millennia old, to cover your head when you approach God, when you pray to God. And so they are they are all praying as a group. They had just barely charged God with being guilty of, of not upholding the covenant with the Jewish people, but their default is to pray anyway. So it's very powerful. Now let's move on and, and raise some questions. So why did God command genocide? And how do we explain the conquests? There's a lot of reasons, a lot of answers that have been given, but here's, here's a few of them. Um, and I guess these aren't these are not independent explanations. They're all kind of the same. They're all kind of the same, kind of all these bullet points. Okay, I'll just show a couple of them now. So the question, what would have happened to the Israelites had God allowed the Canaanites to dwell among, among the Israelites? Well, the typical answer is that that question is usually asked to answer this question. Why would, does God really condone genocide? Did God really command Joshua and, and his armies to exterminate every man, woman, child, and animal? completely in, in, in the land. If, and so, so they say, you ask this question, um, well, what would have happened had the Israelites, had God allowed the Israelites to live with the Canaanites? And the conclusion is, well, they would have been, the Israelites would have been corrupted. They would have adopted all the pagan, all the, all the practices of the Canaanites and you know, sexual promiscuity and all the, all the other problems that they see that they had. Okay. The second bullet point, the entire world, here's the justification. God destroyed all these people, especially the flood story, the flood story, and then the, the genocide the conquest at the time of Joshua. The entire world before the flood and the later Canaanites were stubborn 
and God couldn't talk to them. This is the three-year-old analogy. I've heard this given a few times um, in my, with my colleagues or some other like evangelical Christians will say some of these things. I've heard them in a couple of different places where, you know, the, the Canaanites are like three-year-old children who are throwing a tantrum. They're not listening to God. Um, they might do a lot of damage to themselves and others. And so God just killed them in an act of mercy to take them away. And then later in the judgment or the resurrection or some future time, the day of judgment, he will be merciful to them and teach them and work with them. Okay, I've heard that many times. The entire world before the flood and the later Canaanites were wicked. This is the reason why God, this is the reason we give. This is not the, the reason in Joshua or Judges. Uh, but it's the reason we today, some of my colleagues and others in my community have given. Okay, entire world before the flood was wicked and then the later Canaanites. And they were, so they were sexually promiscuous. They sacrificed children. They worshiped many gods, etc. These are always among the three things that are mentioned that uh, are the reasons why God would do this, okay? But is there another solution, another interpretation that we might consider? I think there is, and most biblical scholars do too. Question I have as a scholar looking at the texts is, was anyone living in Jericho during the days of Joshua's conquest? According to some scholarships, uh, archaeology, the answer is no. There was nobody living in, in, in that city, was not inhabited at that time, in the 11th, 12th, or 11th centuries BCE. Did Jericho, even if people had did live there, what did Jericho have a wall that the soldiers marched around and the wall came tumbling down? <laughs> okay, no, the answer is no, there was no wall there. There were walls around Jericho at different time periods. Jericho is one of the oldest uh, inhabited cities in the world. So there are some sections, if you go to Jericho, the old Jericho today, and you see the remains, there are some walls, some even dating way back in the Bronze Age, way back during this time period, but before Joshua. And there is even some levels of some signs of destruction, but not at the time of the conquest, the way that the Bible, the timeline the Bible gives us. There are roughly 20 cities that have been identified by archaeologists. 20 cities mentioned in the lists in Joshua of those cities that have been destroyed. Have archaeologists found any evidence of conflict or war or destruction or fire at any of these cities? They have not, except for three. There is Jericho. There is a city called Ai, A-I, Ai, and Chazor up in the north. If, I'm, if my memory serves me, maybe there's one or two others, but if my memory serves me well, there's, those are the three. Only three that show levels of destruction, but even those three cities, at least two of those three, the destruction does not date to this time period. It dates to way earlier or later. It's perhaps only Chatzor up in by Galilee that has a destruction layer that archaeologists have identified to this time period. And it's not hard. Some people who are not familiar with archaeology, they, they might say, well, how, how precise is archaeology to identify destruction or disruption in the timeline of the city, it's very easy. Because what you do, if you were uh, an army, come, you would come in, you would topple some of the buildings, especially the, the, the cultic center, the shrine, you would topple that, and you would build yours right on top of it, or you would inhabit the city. And so you would leave a layer of rubble and ash and broken pottery and other things to show that clearly something happened. We archaeologists have found disruptions both by military conquest 
or by earthquakes. Earthquakes might give you the same kind of archaeological data. Also, one of those three cities I mentioned, I, comes from the word meaning ruin. So you, what you can see is that the city wasn't called ruin and then destroyed. They didn't mark it. Joshua's you know, people didn't mark it down and say, we destroyed the city and it just happened to have the name ruin. No, this is given, this name is placed on that city long after the fact, way after the fact. And it's a, a city that is destroyed or it's in rubble, it's uh, it's in ruin and people didn't live there. And so the, the idea among some biblical scholars, the fact that this name means ruin, uh, it was just placed on that city way after the fact. Okay, we're trying to piece all these things together to build a story. Like this is what archaeologists do. They're trying to reconstruct the past based on the remains. Now let's go to the text. You have in Joshua 11 and 12, and I've got the, the, the exact verses right here. It talks of complete extermination. There's not a single survivor, especially if you look in chapter 11, verse 8. Not a single survivor. However, in Judges 1.1, it states that after Joshua died, the tribes were, were wondering if they should attack the Canaanites. And you're like, wait a minute. In back in Joshua, it said that they attacked the Canaanites and there was no survivors. You keep reading and you have judges, different account in judges, where people are wondering whether they should now attack the Canaanites. Okay, that's odd. You also have Joshua 12.10. Go back to Joshua and it states that Joshua conquered Jerusalem. However, in Joshua, just a couple of chapters later, in Joshua 15, verse 63, it admits, the text admits that, quote, the people of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the Jebusites live with the people of Judah in Jerusalem to this day. According to the biblical text, the timeline, it's not till David, 200 years later, when Jerusalem was taken over by the Judahites. So this text, is written way after that fact when there are still Canaanites and the people of Judah in Jerusalem are living with them. So there's contradictions here. Okay. We also see in Judges 3 5, it says, So the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The Jebusites are still there. Contradicts with what Joshua 12 10 stated. And then I, I already mentioned this. It wasn't until after 200 years later that Joshua conquered, or sorry, that David conquered Jerusalem, and that's in 2 Samuel 5, 6. Okay, we, uh, we got Judges 1, 21. It states that it wasn't the tribe of Judah that failed to drive out the Jebusites, but it was the tribe of Benjamin. Another conflicting data. Joshua 17, Joshua commanded the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites, quote, even though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. So there you have Joshua commanding them. They acknowledge that the Canaanites are very strong. They have chariots of iron. However, in Judges not in Judges 4, the conquest never happened. And it states that Israel was weaker than the people of the land who had 900 chariots. That's why, that's the, that's why this author said that the Israelites could not drive them out. Okay, in Judges 2.2, God was mad at the, at the Israelites not for failing to exterminate the Canaanites, but because they made covenants with them. Covenanted with them. Okay, so if, in terms of archaeology, so we went to archaeology, then we went to the text, now we're back looking at archaeology, just to kind of a, to tie things up to, to make a broader point, and that is, 
If such a conquest occurred, we would see, we would expect to see widespread destruction, widespread, and we don't see that. In Joshua 11, it says the Lord hardened the hearts of the people in Canaan so that they would fight against Israel and so that the Lord would then fight for Israel and destroy their enemies. See, that's um, that's another conflicting problem, at least in the text of why God did this. There's also the issue of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were people in the land who the Lord supposedly wanted dead, wanted them to be killed. But they didn't want to die. And so what they did is they asked Israel if they could be their servants. And then Joshua spared them. And so here's just for people in my community, they always ask, I mean, here, here's a conundrum. You have the implication is that either the prophet didn't obey God, God's prophet didn't obey him, or God really didn't command a slaughter of innocent people. This is in Joshua 9. Not only that, is that Joshua was deceived. It says that the Gibeonites knew what was going to happen. They were going to be killed. So they, they came to Israel's leaders, to Joshua and others, and they said, we are from a faraway land. We're not from here. We're from a faraway land. And, and they brought bread and, and some other uh, goods to the Israelites from a faraway land, they claim. And because they said, because we heard about the God of Israel and how powerful, and he brought you out of Egypt, and we wanted to come be your servants. And so they they lied, and the Israelites and God's prophet were duped. And so they allowed the Gibeonites to survive, to live with them as servants. Okay, there's all kinds of problems with both the texts. There's problems within the text, and there's problems between the text and uh, the archaeological data. So what do we have? The explanation of this, the solution to the angry God and the conquest and that, that, that is that in the ancient Near East, there's this idea that our God is more powerful than your God. This is it's all over the literature. This is the point they're trying to make. Our God reigns supreme. War is constant. You're trying to fight for land and territory and goods. You build your temple on top of the ruins of your enemy to show that the fact that we are here in your land and we, and we conquered your people and we built our temple to our God on top of the temple to your God demonstrates this is proof that our God is more powerful and our God is with us and, he, and we conquered you. It's a violent text. Joshua and Judges are very violent texts, and this is expected in a violent culture. Here is kind of the, I bolded this and put this in yellow, but here is a, a pretty solid articulation of what the authors were trying to do. The Israelites had to tell their story this way way that they told it, to convince other nations that the God of Israel, and, and also maybe to convince themselves and other people, that the God of Israel fought for them. Ancient Near Eastern nations understood the language of strength and equated that with divine favor. So when certain Israelite scribal groups write down their national history at a later date, they probably exaggerated their military conflicts to document the strength of their God. And so here's some, uh, we'll walk through some evidence of how we know they exaggerated the claims. We've already mentioned this, but this period shows, well, we didn't mention this specifically, but we did mention the second half of this, that there was very, very little conflict. But this period shows an explosion of settlement in the Central Hill country by a group of people. So here's this map, as you can see, you have coastal plains. So here's the, the four regions of the area. The coastal plain in number one, here's on the coast. And then you have the Central Hill 
that the foothills, the shafela called the shafela, the foothills that lead to the plain from the plain into the mountainous region. This is the central hill country. This set number two part. Okay, so let me just show you number three. This is where you get the Dead Sea and the Jordan Valley. It goes way low. So it's one of the lowest places on earth, lowest spot on earth above, above the sea. And this middle region, the region of Judea, is the central hill country where right during the time that the Bible claims that people came into the land, we're talking about the 12th century, 11th century, 10th century, this, this time period, there is an explosion of settlement. A group of people came in and settled this land. So that could be historical for the biblical period where the Israelites came into the land and settled there. Uh, and there's some other theories about who these people are. And, and maybe they didn't come in from the outside, but maybe they were already living among the Canaanites. And then they moved Israelites who were Canaanites, moved to the central hill country, and then built and settled there. Anyway, so we can talk about that more in class, but those are some of the theories. But regardless of where they came from and how they built, where they built, there was an explosion of building and no evidence of widespread conflict. It was a really, it was a peaceful time where the people came in and settled in the land. Okay, relatively peaceful. Okay, you have this word harem. I want you to focus on this. I want you to remember this term. The term harem refers to property of God. If there's a certain property where you turn something over to, to God, you dedicate this land to your God, that will mean that everything about that land should be, that is impure, uh, that is not holy, should be driven out from the land, burned, exterminated. That is harem. And that, that idea is that when you move in and you want to sanctify a land, you have to do away with all of these people who are impure, not like you. There's corruption. And so here's a few examples of people who have done this in the ancient Near East, who have claimed to have exterminated someone. You have King Merneptah, Egyptian King Merneptah, claimed in about the year 1207. We have an inscription from him. And he says that he has made Israel extinct. Their seed no longer exists. Something like that translation. Okay, well, we know that's not true. Merneptah is going through talking about all the people that he has killed and he's, all the different nations. And Israel is mentioned as one of those nations. Okay, but it didn't happen. Israel survived. You also have the Israelites claiming to have made the Amalekites and the Canaanites extinct. We know that that's not the case, both internally in the text and archaeologically. And for example, here's for the Amalekites. Here's the example. It says that Saul killed all the Amalekites except the king in verse Samuel 15. But by the time you get to 2 Samuel, after Saul dies, it says that David defeats the Amalekites. So clearly they weren't extinct or David wouldn't have to, to have defeated them. As far as the Canaanites, here's some Canaanite DNA a study. This is interesting. I don't know how much we can say about this, but let me click into this and show you. Here is an article where these scientists have found a lot of DNA uh, individuals from different parts of the Eastern Mediterranean coast. They found D Canaanite DNA in with uh, people today who live in Lebanon and some of that region. It's in other words, Canaanite DNA is all over the place in this region. So they weren't killed off, 
Some people might say, yeah, but there's Canaanite DNA that was outside the land of Canaan, and so that could have survived. But either way, you have a lot of DNA that geneticists and other scholars uh, are finding among people living today in the region, everywhere. Okay. Also, the Moabites claim to have made the tribe of Gad extinct. The Moabite inscription, which we have, you can even Google the Moabite inscription, claimed to have made the tribe of Gad, one of the Israelite tribes, claimed to have made, to have made them extinct. That didn't happen, at least according to biblical texts. You have this word also etiology. I want, I want you to remember this word. An etiology or an etiological text is one that attempts to explain something. So in your current circumstance, you're attempting to go back into history and explain the cause of what you are experiencing now or something in your narrative. You, you've inherited a narrative about your people, about your circumstances, and uh, you're not sure. You're not sure exactly why it is the way it is right now. And so an etiology is an explanation after the fact, looking back, trying to explain what happened. And so obviously it's not always historical, especially in the ancient world, when you don't have clear uh, historical texts and data and uh, computers and you, know, you, don't, you don't have all that data. So it's all word of mouth. It's all oral tradition. And where there's gaps in the story, you will just fill in your community will fill in the gaps. You'll make the story, even if it's not historical. That's an etiology, essentially. And then is, uh, the last thing you see here on the slide is that the book of Jonah, which I'll deal with later, not here in this video or in class, the book of Jonah might be a response to the genocide in the book of Joshua. It's, it's rejecting that view that God is going to exterminate everybody. And uh, we'll, we'll discuss the book of Jonah in class. So, that's kind of a crash course, the very basics on what this issue, on how complicated this gets. There's a lot more detail, but you can see the archaeology does not match a widespread destruction. Archaeology does not fit some of the biblical texts, and there's also a lot of problems internally within the biblical texts. So the solution, so when the rabbi stands up in the, the movie God on Trial, and he's he's angry, he's trying to make sense of the stories that he has been his sacred text that he's been reading his whole life, the rabbi is taking everything 100% historical. God did this. David did this uh, because of God and all the way through. And he's, he's taking that at face value and then drawing conclusions about what's happening in his day. It's a, one possible solution, at least for people who have theological explanations, archaeological explanations, historical explanations. One of those solutions, I'm not going to tell you which what we can talk about, uh, those of my students who are watching this, we can talk about it in class, if any of these solutions make sense. But one of those solutions is that God didn't command all these people to be slaughtered. Uh, he didn't command people to be turned to salt or kill them because they accidentally touched the ark. Again, these texts are written hundreds and hundreds of years later, uh, many, many years later. And there's their, their current political situation and their theology. Uh, if we can use that term, are help, helping shape the text for people probably at the time of Jeremiah, right before and even right after the Babylonians came in and decimated the temple and carried Israelites off. These are the texts that are written about during that time, shortly before and shortly after that invasion. And so we're talking 600 years after the Israelites came into the land of Canaan, 400 years after David became king. And that's the time period in which these texts are being written, or at least in their final form. Okay, so we have to keep that in mind. 
and keep these some of these solutions in mind. Again, we'll talk about this class, but that's the video. Thanks for tuning in, everybody.